Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is a syndicated show produced in the studios of CJSF Radio in Burnaby, BC. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. Political power is in the hands of the people, that people are invested with sovereignty. Well, the United States, it's, it's not. It is a contradiction between, on the one hand, the grassroots and the ruling circles. And I think the biggest danger to the further development of participatory democracy and the, the, the need and the desire of the people in the United States to change the situation is the necessity to completely get rid of the false notion of the lesser of two evils. Because we can ask ourselves, how long are, people, are the people in the United States going to wait before they make a move against the two-party system. That's the voice of author and activist Arnold August. In this week's show, we speak to Arnold about his newest book, Cuba and its Neighbors, Democracy in Motion. Stay tuned. And there are moments in our history where we come face to face with the truth and we are forced to look at ourselves critically and to look at the ways we have accommodated to lies. Someone who has been invested in exposing us to the truth, not only about our systems of democratic process, but also the way we engage and look at the struggles and the victories of other people um, striving to create more transparent and participatory efforts uh, is my next guest. Arno Lagos is an author, he's an activist, he's someone who has been uh, looking critically at the democracy process uh, in Cuba and exposing uh, many of the lies that are uh, presented in North America as a way to divide us um, from the struggles in Cuba, the struggles in Latin America to eradicate neoliberalism and also to expose imperialism. Very happy to have him on our program. He is the author of Cuba and His Neighbors, Democracy in Motion. Very privileged to have you on our program. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure for me to be back with you once again, Sylvia. Now, let's begin by talking a little bit about this notion of democracy, because it has become a term that defines us, but we don't really look at it critically. What does it mean, and how do you define it in your book? And, and what are the differences between democracy as it is practiced in North America or in the American system, and democracy as it is envisioned in places like Cuba? In fact, you're right. The, the, the term democracy is a, is a very loaded term. Uh, in fact, I don't really define democracy in a definitive way in my book. The goal is to bring readers through different experiences uh, of democracy, different versions of democracy, uh, starting with the United States uh, type of democracy and then moving on to Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, and finally Cuba, which which uh, has a very specific importance for this book. However, one has to deal with the issue of democracy. I know the word uh, democracy comes from the uh, Greek uh, classical tradition, uh, meaning power of the people. At the same time, I do not 
agree that uh, everyone in the world, whether it's United States, Canada, and especially in the countries of the South, such as Latin America, that we have to be stuck with the notion that the definition of democracy comes as a straight line from the Greek to the uh, current Western or Northern civilization. On the contrary, I challenge that, because there are other ways in which other peoples have experienced the question of, uh, of power of the people, of political power. For example, the indigenous people in Latin America and North America, they have their own tradition of political power uh, on how, how to organize their society and the role of the people uh, uh, in participating in this society. At the same time, as you notice uh, in, in the very title of, the, of my book, I have the word democracy. But as I explain, I use it more as a catch-all phrase, for want of a better term, because everyone uses the word democracy now. While I do not uh, define democracy definitively, I do deal with it throughout the book. Uh, so that people can, in a, in a sense, reach their own conclusions. I do, however, point to one feature of democracy in the very large sense of the term as being important, and that is the participatory democracy. Democracy without participation doesn't really make sense to me, irrespective of the system in which it is being practiced, whether it's United States, Cuba, or Venezuela. And so uh, I, I deal with, that's a common thread throughout the book, participatory democracy. But as I mentioned in the beginning of this uh, interview, I do not define it definitively because I see democracy as a process, an ongoing process. People learn from the process, they build on that process, and they build a democracy according to, the, to their own views. So to define democracy or even participatory democracy prematurely will, I believe, uh, interfere with, with what is going on in the world today. That is, irrespective of the system, people are searching for a participatory democracy in which people have real effective power. I'm so glad that you make that point quite clear because I think the minute we define something or say this is the truth, you know, and the truth becomes this uh, rigid object, you know, that doesn't allow us uh, ways to move or to even imagine uh, new ways of being. And in many ways, as, as you rightly point out, worldwide, we are seeing multiple expressions of people's struggles to liberate themselves from imperialism, from notions of uh, economic development that impoverish not only the land, but the people and their political systems. Your book is titled Cuba and Its Neighbors. Can you talk a little bit about the legacy of the Cuban people and their struggle in this democratic process that they have engaged? The uh, example of Cuba is quite interesting for, for people all over the world. One of the main reasons is that it is not a very well-known fact, but Cuba, going back to the second half of the 19th century, had developed on its own uh, a, for, uh, a type of participatory democracy, even though they did not call it that uh, with that term at that time. But in the 19th century, they organized uh, right w under the nose of the Spanish uh, colonial empire, which controlled Cuba uh, completely, a, a republican arms uh, with, in which people, through uh, voting, through proposing, uh, develop constituent assemblies to work out uh, constitutions 
based on the needs and heritage of the Cuban people. People completely participated in these constituent assemblies, resulting in four different constitutions in the second half of the 19th century. And uh, later on, of course, uh, this was interrupted by the uh, U.S. intervention in 1898, uh, as Cuba was about to win its uh, victory uh, over uh, Spanish domination. And then, of course, the U.S. took over, and they imposed their own type of political system uh, on the uh, Cuban people, which went was diametrically opposite to the participatory political system that was being developed uh, in that country by the people on their own. I, I chronicle this whole history in some detail in my book, uh, but in this short interview, I just would like to mention that after 1959, or with 1959, a major watershed was reached in Cuban history uh, with the revolution that was com- that culminated on January 1st, 1959. It actually started in the 20th century, 1953. January 1st, 1959 symbolizes or really reflects uh, the fact that for the first time in the history of the Cuban people, they had political power in their hands. That is, uh, democracy, you know, uh, defined even if you take it uh, according to the Greek definition, power of the people, they got that for the first time in 1959. I'm not saying that it was perfect, but it was a major difference, a major contradiction with the type of system that existed, not only under the Batista regime, backed by the United States after 1952, but that during the whole 19th century, uh, there was a major difference between the Cuban tradition, uh, which was rekindled on January 1st, 1959, and what had taken place under U.S. domination before 1959. It's interesting uh, to speak of neighbors. Neighbors, um, to me, has this sounding of uh, friendliness and, you know, um, uh, somehow uh, courtesy, courteousness that um, in this case does not apply. Cuba is surrounded by very aggressive neighbors, uh, particularly Canada, the U.S., have been very outspoken and um, in their um, criticism of of Cuba and I wonder if you could t- we could talk a little bit about the way we have limited democratic processes in North America to a voting process and how this complicates and denies the complexity of social movements uh, everywhere where the democratic process implies um, an embodiment a participation that is not just you know put in the ballot uh, once every four years. Yes. Uh, in fact, uh, the word, I use the word neighborhood in the sense of, in sense geographically. For example, I deal with uh, four of Cuba's neighbors, United States, which is very close, and others, Venezuela, Bolivia, and Ecuador, which are a bit farther, but offer, you know, uh, different uh, features of different uh, types of democracy in order for people to have a feeling of different versions of democracy there, that there is not one defining version that comes from the North and spe- specifically from the United States. Uh, the first uh, version that I deal with is the uh, uh, American version from the United States. 
I don't really do with Canada as such. I deal with the United States uh, as the uh, main um, version of a different type of democracy. Firstly, I think it's important to take into account that it is not enough to say that, well, uh, on the one hand, the American democracy is very good, it's the best in the world, and it has to be imposed on all countries in the world by you know one way or the other, even by war. Nor do I agree, and this is very important, especially for, for people uh, listening to your radio program, who I imagine are in generally progressive and uh, perhaps left-leaning or open-minded. I don't think it is enough to say that, oh, well, American democracy, it's a bourgeois democracy, it's run by the wealthy and all that. Of course, this is true. But it's not enough to say, to assert that. It is well known that the uh, American democracy is run by the wealthy. For example, during the election campaigns, Time magazine ran a front cover with a, a very clear picture uh, of the White House, and in front of it, they had a big force sale sign, indicating clearly what, that n- what no one can hide, that United States elections are bought by money. But it's not enough to say that. Everyone knows that those who are in power in the United States are capitalists or are directly linked to the ruling circle. But it is important, I think, and I think based on not only what my view is, but on reviews and uh, praise from academics in the United States and other countries, I go into the nature of democracy in the United States. How does it actually operate? For example, it is well known that the United States has, uh, go- is going through a major economic crisis, a recession. Everyone knows that. that. Can we just simply deduce from that that the political system in the United States is also in crisis? I personally, based on my investigation as, as documented in my book, believe that the American political system, unfortunately, is not in crisis. It's working very well. And this is, you know, I think my, my contribution is, is the following with regards to uh, democracy in the United States. That version is that I go into the whole history of uh, U.S. For example, the word, uh, you know, people from the left are often uh, attracted by the word liberalism or even consider themselves liberals, which is very good. But what is the actual nature of li- liberalism in the United States? Where does it come from? at the end of the 18th century and the 19th century. I clearly point this out, that it's directly related to the notion of the liberty or the freedom of the people to accumulate wealth at the expense of the vast majority of the people. And, of course, this only applies to some very uh, privileged people who are able to do that. And so this is how I deal with it. What I think is important in my chapter on democracy in the United States is that I take the case study of Obama. Like, there's a lot of things said about U.S. democracy, it's a bourgeois democracy, or it works or it doesn't work, but how did he actually come into power? Why was he uh, supported by an important section of the ruling circles in the United States? And so in order to, to carry this uh, analysis through, I looked at it in an open minded manner, and I read all of his main works, of Obama's main works, from his first book in 2004 to his second book in 2008 to his main pre-candidate speeches before the first mandate, during the first mandate uh, election campaign, during the second election uh, campaign, and my findings 
which I document in, in detail, is that despite what some liberal-thinking people might consider, or even some left-leaning people might consider, uh, Obama, as he went through his personal life, rejected all progressive notions with regards to international affairs, with regards to domestic affairs, etc. And so it is false to think that he is in any way represents a progressive strand in the United States. However, he was very useful because he was able to, on the one hand, provide the impression to many people in the United States, and even more so internationally, that he represents change in the United States, that he is going to be different from Bush or the Republicans or, or whatever. But the fact is, while the this image of change, which was carefully fostered by the image makers in the United States, those who are paid, who have a business, to, to work out a good a source for presidential uh, candidates, that this impression is given, but at the same time, Obama always gave this the right uh, uh, buzzwords directed to the ruling circles in the United States that he is the best man for the ruling circles to get United States out of the crisis, uh, to get United States uh, out of the credibility gap with regards to countries in the other world, as well as to the uh, with the with regards to the major credibility gap in the United States, the domestic situation, especially with regards to African Americans, and this is how. Uh, he came into power. He came into power uh, in order to save the system. Uh, for example, the uh, example is often given in history that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a liberal, was a good person and all that, but his own biographer, Conrad Black, wrote, and he's right, I have to agree with Conrad Black on that, uh, who was a very conservative person, said that FDR was a person who saved capitalism in the United States. That is true. This is how the system operates in the United States. And so, with regards to uh, Obama now, I write how uh, other people in the United States, for example, Black Agenda Report, uh, specifically Glenn Ford, who is uh, an important writer for, the, for that uh, website, as well as ac other academics and other people in the United States, they are saying Obama is not the lesser of two evils. As you know, Sylvia, this is the major refrain that is carried on every time there are elections for president in the United States. Who is the lesser of two evils? And, you know, unfortunately, people on the left, progressive people, they feel sort of relieved to say, ah, I'm going to vote for Obama. He's the lesser of two evils. I don't agree with that. I believe, I agree with the Black Agenda Report and other people in the United States who are saying that. Obama is the most effective of the two evils. That is, he can get away with doing things, whether it's international affairs. For example, there are more wars going on uh, since Obama uh, came into power than was the situation under Bush. He can get away with it because of this aura of change that was fabricated around his personality, around his being. This is, uh, I think, a, an important point. He is also has been more effective uh, uh, of the two evils in uh, maintaining a, a whole hold on the domestic situation. For example, once he came into power, he basically made what is what is known as the post-racial society speech for the United States. In other words, there's no such thing as racial discrimination, racial division in the United States, which is false. But as a result of that, he unfortunately was able to uh, anesthetize or sort of 
put to sleep, in a manner of speaking, an important section of the African-American population in the United States based on this illusion, well, we have an African-American in the, as a, in the White House as president, we don't want to rock the boat, we're okay. And this is, in my view, extremely dangerous, and that's why I have a great deal of respect for the African-American writers, intellectuals, and others who are not African-American but are living in the United States who point out the real nature of Obama as being uh, the most e- most effective of the two evils and not the lesser of the two evils. For example, I can give you one example. As you know, Sylvia, you, you, you mentioned the issue of grassroots movement. For example, in the United States, there was the Occupy movement that took place a couple of years ago, and it's still going on in various cities in the United States. And, and of course, the main, uh, and not in all cities, because it's not a homogeneous movement, in uh, most of the cities, or many of the cities, the main force of that Occupy movement were mainly uh, students, youth, other people, mainly, as we say, you know, non-African American. But I, I, I would ask you, and I ask your listeners to think, what would happen if the African American population in the United States, which in my view has the most revolutionary progressive tradition in the United States, if it had joined with the occupied movement and aim at the ruling circle, the situation in the States would be completely different now. This is not to say it cannot happen in the future, but this is how Obama was able to keep a uh, hold or a lid on the boiling pot uh, in the United States. I'm so glad that you make uh, that connection that the whole legit imply legitimacy that the you know elections can have do not in any way advance democratic process rather the process of democratization of uh, creating inclusive and participatory spaces, it comes um, to fruition when people are able to come together and, and see beyond those mass of illusion that, that you know change has occurred simply by changing the color of skin of the person yeah. that is put in charge. Um, here in Vancouver, we just had an election in British Columbia, and uh, of course, the major issues of health, uh, the level of poverty that this province is in, um, was not even touched, and most of the commercial media reported on the, you know, the personality of the one, you know, the the candidates running. Who's the most charismatic, and how was their performance? And you know, it was the the whole theater of the political sphere is constantly being diminished to just that, you know, a, a series of performances and who can perform best. And then, of course, who will be the most effective evil? In this case, um, we have a government that calls itself liberal, but is more conservative than the conservatives themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is an important lesson for us. But what I want to ask you, um, and we yeah. only have a few minutes left, um, okay. how do we then, um, as a society bring together you know the this lessons that we learn sometimes through very difficult battles and losses and create participatory efforts that can transcend those issues of, of race which is being you know entrenched by the political system and by the many ways in which we're educated in the society and also overcome the issue of class because that's another problem that we face right workers do not identify with academics and academics don't see themselves as workers so there's a problem there even though we're both workers um, mm-hmm. we, we're not we're not coming together how do we learn from the examples of the 
the Venezuela and the Cuban revolution and perhaps apply some of those lessons to our uh, learning process? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm happy that you raise the other examples, uh, such as Cuba, Venezuela, comparing it to the United States. In the United States, uh, as I mentioned in my book throughout, the main common thread is participatory democracy. So people might say, well, do you really think that the United States has a participatory democracy? No. In fact, I give a full details how it's based on exclusion and racism right from day one in the 18th century. But the point is, in the United States, participatory democracy is and can only take place from the bottom up against the ruling circles, against the so-called two-party system. Every time there's elections, you mentioned, whether it's in Canada, B.C., or United States, we're bombarded with this notion there's left versus right amongst the ruling circles, conservatives versus liberals, Republicans versus Democrats, etc. But it, they're basically the same thing. It's just the same system changing faces. So in the United States, it's uh, participatory democracy from the bottom up. And perhaps one can learn from, such, for example, Venezuela. One of the main contributions of Venezuela, specific, specifically Hugo Chavez, that he stood against the old two-party system entrenched in Venezuela, and when he won the elections in 1998, it was against the two-party system. And it was quite amazing that he actually won it through elections. And since then, uh, Venezuela has been able to advance because they have opposed the two-party uh, system in Venezuela. Perhaps this is sort of can give us an indication of how to go in the United States and Canada, you know, but of course the, the conditions are different in each country. But the, uh, in my view, participatory democracy in the United States has to be from the bottom up against the, exclu uh, the, the, the political system in that country, which is based on excluding people. Whereas in Venezuela, uh, Cuba, Bolivia, Ecuador, it's different. Participatory democracy is developing there, even though it is not final, even in the Cuban case after more than 50 years. Participatory democracy is being sought after and carried out by uh, the leadership, revolutionary leadership, as well as people at the base, at the grass level. And that is the major difference between, on the one hand, my examples of Venezuela, Bolivia, Ecuador, Cuba, and on the other hand, United States. Participatory democracy in the countries in the South is sort of a, a fusion of revolutionary leadership and, and, and people at the grassroots level struggling on their own with the revolutionary leadership in order to make uh, sure that political power is in the hands of the people, that people are invested with sovereignty. Well, the United States, it's, it's not. It is a contradiction between, on the one hand, the grassroots and the ruling circles. And I think the biggest danger to the further development of participatory democracy and the, the, the need and the desire of the people in the United States to change the situation is the necessity to completely get rid of the false notion of the lesser of two evils. Because we can ask ourselves, how long are, people, are the people in the United States going to wait before they make a move against a two-party system? That's beautiful. Thank you so much for being with us. Your book, Cuba and its Neighbors, Democracy in Motion. Tell our audience how they can access it. Well, it's easy. I have a, I have a website. It's www.democracycuba.com. Democracy Cuba uh, is one word. Thank you again for being with us today. Thank you. Take care. That was Arnold Agus. He is the author of uh, Cuba and its Neighbors, Democracy in Motion.
Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.